1 Corinthians chapter 7, this morning we're uh, finishing sort of a three-week series that we've been doing on God's wisdom on uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Actually, I think this is our second week in this passage, uh, which I hope to finish up, up from verses 8 through 16 of 1 Corinthians 7. Today we'll be looking mainly at verses 12 through 16 since we covered the other section last week. Please read along with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 8, which says this, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Oh, we hear some holy children there in the background. (laughs) Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Well, uh, when I come to this passage, it actually takes me back to my college days uh, and early seminary days. When I was, before I went to college, I had two good friends, uh, a guy and a girl, and they were interested in each other, and they dated, and uh, early on, I think, Maybe even before I began college, they got married, and I was very happy for them and kept in touch with them. Um, but before I had graduated from university, from college, uh, they were divorced. And so it was one of these sad things as a, as a young guy in my 20s, just realizing, wow, uh, what, what happened here? And I didn't have much contact with him but uh, I did see her once afterwards, and we sat down and talked, and, and she told me, uh, not all the details or anything, but she told me that basically she went to see a counselor, and the counselor told her, you shouldn't have to put up with that. You have legitimate grounds for divorce. Now, what, what I recall about that situation is that it, it didn't feel right to me. I wasn't sure that she had legitimate grounds for divorce. Uh, She initiated the divorce. She had divorced him. And I didn't know all the details. I didn't need to know all the details. And that's not the point of this story. The point is that here I was, a young seminarian. I had a Bible degree from college, and I was now working on a master's degree. And I had no idea really where to go in the Bible to even say, wow, uh, it sounds like you had legitimate grounds for divorce, or it sounds like you really didn't, and uh, what are you going to do about that? I I had no bearing. I had no place to really go to that I was aware of. And it was when I came to this passage uh, a couple of years later that I realized, wow, this is the passage. I mean, this is the key passage. If somebody's struggling with the issues of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, this is the passage we want to take them to. This is what we want to walk them through. This is what biblical counselors should take people through when they're struggling with issues like divorce or remarriage or singleness. Uh, and um, this is one of the key passages, 1 Corinthians 7. And uh, since in Romans 12, I believe it is, um, it says that, uh, Romans 15, actually Romans 15 verse 14, um, that that early church in Rome, Paul praised them because they were 
competent to counsel one another. They were equipped to counsel one another. Even the members could counsel one another. I think it's really essential for us to be really familiar with 1 Corinthians 7 because you will have people who have struggles in marriage that are friends of yours. They will have questions about divorce or remarriage. And if you want to be competent, that is able to counsel them, you should be familiar with this section so that you could walk through it with them. And as we look at verses 8 through 16, what we've been seeing is we've seen God's wisdom on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and we've seen really three groups of people that God instructs to help them make wise decisions regarding marriage. Three groups of people. The first group is verses 8 and 9. We saw them, and those are the previously married people, the previously married. Now, they're, they're referred to as the unmarried and the widows here. And last week, we talked about that when he uses the term unmarried, he is, seems to be referring to those who have been previously married, those who are divorced. Uh, and I believe that that's who he's speaking to because he addresses in verse 25 another group of people, the virgins, those are the never been married, and we're going to get to that in, in the coming weeks. But uh, those are the people who have never been married, but these people who are in the same category as widows would be those who have lost a spouse to divorce. And someone asked, I think last week, they said they think it's probably um, those who were only divorced with biblical grounds, though I'm not sure that that's true because in the very next section, it says... Uh, verses 10 through 12. This is the next section we already looked, and these are the, this is a, a believer married to a believer. And notice in verse 10, it says, but to the married, I give instruction, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that term unmarried is the same term used in the previous section, verse 8, the unmarried. And there we have two people who are believers. They're both Christians. They should not be divorced except for sexual immorality, marital unfaithfulness. And that's why um, uh, he says in verse 10, I, I give the instructions not I, but the Lord. That's his way of saying quotation marks. I'm referring back to what Matthew, what, in Matthew 19, what Jesus taught about uh, marriage, and there was an exception there that if, you, if there was infidelity, the divorce was permitted. There were those, that's biblical grounds for divorce. And so he is referring back to that, and he's saying, but if you're two believers and you don't have biblical grounds for divorce, you shouldn't get divorced. And it seems as though in Corinth, the issue was that people were wanting to get divorced. For some reason, maybe they thought it was more spiritual to be unmarried or to be celibate, even if they were married. And so he's saying, if you've done that, that was wrong, but... You've got two options. You can be reconciled to one another or remain unmarried in that divorced state. And so it seems like he's referring to people here who, um, uh, in this passage, who are uh, um, either divorced by biblical grounds or unbiblical grounds. And if you're two believers and you've been divorced by unbiblical grounds, your only option is to, you have two options, remain unmarried or be reconciled to one another. So you can remarry, but just one another. And there are all kinds of issues, and we'll talk about some of those possible scenarios where that becomes impossible because maybe one spouse leaves and goes married someone else and is disobedient and so forth, and, and now you're not in that situation anymore. But we covered those two sections last time. Remember, we're looking at verses 8 through 16, three groups of people that really God instructs to help make wise decisions re- regarding marriage. And the first one were the previously married, those the widows and divorced people, or we say unmarried here. And the second are the believers married to believers. But there's a third group of people that we're looking into this morning And those are the believer who is married to an unbeliever, which is is not something that should take place because 2 Corinthians 6 says what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness. And Paul Paul has taught that, you know, you really should not marry an unbeliever. And they were obviously familiar with that. In fact, just going back, look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. It says in verse 1, 
He says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. And so it seems clear that they had written to him asking specific questions about singleness, celibacy, marriage, divorce, because that was a problem. And he said, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. When we looked at verse 1, it was suggested that that was probably a slogan or something that Paul had said and that the church had grabbed onto and just repeated that out of context. And so things were happening like uh, somebody who's single saying, well, it's good not to touch a woman. Paul said that. So I will never touch a woman. And of course, that's a euphemism there for actually sexual activity. It's not that you need to have, like in my old uh, high school, Christian high school, you had to be uh, a certain number of Bibles, seven Bibles away from a girl. Um, So it's not actual touching them, but it's it's probably, uh, you know, it's using a common Greek euphemism for sexual intimacy. Um, And so when we think about... um, that phrase being used was not only being used among those who were single, but also those who were married. And some of them were saying that we, we should be, you know, live celibate lives even though we're married. And so uh, Paul addresses them, and we looked at that as well, uh, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 7. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise the wife also. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So they had written to him with questions about celibacy. It was wrong for married people to live celibate lives. If you were single and you wanted to remain celibate, if you had the gift of singleness, in other words, like Paul did, Paul who, as we discussed, was probably previously previously married because in Philippians he said he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means he probably served in the Sanhedrin. It's somewhat speculative, but if he did, he would have had to have been married because the requirement to serve on the Sanhedrin, according to extra-biblical literature, is that you needed to be married. So if Paul really was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, if he was that kind of a guy and served on that Sanhedrin uh, before he was, when he was persecuting Christians as a Jew, also Jews would have taken seriously the command to be fruitful and multiply, and so he would have pursued that at some stage. But at this stage, it's clear that he's not married. We don't know whether his wife left him. We don't know whether his wife passed away. We know that life spans, it was a very rough time living, and she could have very easily died. We don't know that story, but we do know that he's single here because that's why he says, verse 7, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. He says, he says you know, and He's saying that somewhat hyperbolically because he doesn't really wish that everybody was like he was because then nobody would live past that, right? Because there wouldn't be any children. But he's saying there are advantages to it. And we'll talk about some of those in the weeks to come as well. Uh, And then we come to our section and he's saying, uh, if if you are unmarried, previously married, and you have biblical grounds, you can get married again if you are burning with passion, if you uh, are, uh, have unbiblical grounds and you're married to a believer, um, then you can marry that believer or remain unmarried. That's what he covers in the next section. So, and now we're jumping into thinking all this context here that these were issues. Now we have somebody who is a believer who's come to faith in Christ and, and now their spouse has not come to faith in Christ. It probably would have been more common for a wife to come to faith in Christ and her husband to remain a pagan than for a uh, husband to come to Christ and his wife remain a pagan in those days. But regardless, both parties are addressed here. Verses 12 through 16 deals with the unequally yoked marriage where you have a believer in Christ who's married to an unbeliever. And if we're going back to this slogan from chapter 7, verse 1, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, it seems as though some were having this idea of how can I be a Christian married to this idol-worshiping Corinthian pagan? This is bad for my home. This defiles my home. Um, it, keep in mind here that um, you know Paul has just been teaching a lot about holiness. I mean, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Verses 9 through 11, two chapters, 
1 Corinthians 9, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So they had received a letter from him prior to this. They weren't supposed to uh, associate with immoral people, but they had misunderstood that. He's going to clarify it now. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a swindler or a drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So what he's saying there in chapter 5 is, hey, I wrote you before saying don't associate with immoral people And some people were taking that to mean anybody who was a pagan, not to have any kind of association, sort of this Jewish, uh, even though many of these people were Gentiles, almost reverting to like the Jews would shake the dust off of their feet when they left Gentile lands. And so uh, you can imagine then if you're a new Christian in Corinth and your husband or wife is a pagan and people are saying, it's good for you not to touch a woman, and Paul said you know, that you shouldn't associate with immoral people. Well, you know, my husband is immoral. And so I'm not going to associate with him at all in any sense of the word. That seems to be some of what was going on in Corinth. Another verse that helps us give us an idea of the context here is chapter 6, verse 15 of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 6, verse 15... Um, he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. And he's, he's writing to them there saying that uh, you are uh, uh, a people called to be holy, not to live like you used to live. And, and he had a list of immoral ways back in chapter 6, um, verses 9 and following, 9 through 11, such were some of you, he says in verse 11, but you were washed. And so he's saying, uh, you're, you're part of Christ now. And uh, are, do you want to join Christ with a prostitute? May it never be. Do you want to join, you're a part of the body of Christ? Do you want to join Christ with immoral behavior? No. And so I, I really think that if you look at Corinth and all that was going on there and the city, which was known for its immorality and pagan idol worship, that people, it's clear from verse chapter 7 that some people who were believers were thinking, I ought to divorce my unbelieving spouse just because they're a pagan and I shouldn't have any association with them. I don't want to join Christ with them. I don't want to um, be some sort of, uh, I don't want my children to see this. This is bad for them. Those seem to be some of the issues going on. And now we jump into 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12, but to the rest. It comes clear from the context that the rest here are those who are believers married to unbelievers, the rest of the married people. He's just talked about believers married to believers in verses 10 and 11. Now he's saying, but to the rest of you married people, those who both of you are not believers, but just one of you is a believer. Paul doesn't write to unbelievers and tell them how they should live. He's writing to the believers I say not the Lord, and that's again just his way of saying this is not a quotation from the Lord. This is now revelation, as the rest of this letter is from the Apostle Paul, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. So that's a very simple answer to the situation that's going on. You're a believer. You're married to an unbeliever. Uh, the unbeliever knows you're a Christian, but it's still okay staying with you. Doesn't want to go to church, doesn't want to worship with you, doesn't believe in Christ, hasn't submitted their life to Christ, uh, not necessarily involved in sexual immorality, but is just an unbeliever, a pagan. But they're happy to stay with you. Don't divorce them. And he says that, first of all, to the wives which would have been more common, but he says it to the men as well. Uh, verse, he says, um, verse 12, sorry, he says it to the men first. Uh, Any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And now verse 13, and a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. 
So if you do not have the biblical ground of infidelity, you must not divorce your spouse. You must not initiate a divorce with your spouse. Yes. So abandonment is coming up. That's good. But I'm talk- we're talking to believers who have a spouse in verses uh, 12 and 13 who, um, who have a, an, a, a be- an unbelieving spouse, but they're happy to live with them. Okay? I've heard some people teach on this passage. Somebody asked me last week afterwards. They said they've heard somebody say that it is always wrong to initiate a divorce. Always, 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 always. And my response was, well, God initiated a divorce with Israel. He wrote her a certificate of divorce. We read that last week from Isaiah and in Jeremiah. And so God himself is a divorced person, a divorced being, and therefore it cannot be morally wrong to initiate a divorce for every circumstance. And of course, with God and Israel, the sin was all on the part of Israel. But as we look at uh, verse 14, we have this, I, I, I really think, you notice the, it begins with the word for. And so this is an explanatory clause. It seems clear from the explanatory clause that the reason why you should stay with that person is because the reason you wanted to divorce them is you thought that you're being defiled somehow through them. And so that's why you want to divorce them. You think that somehow they make you dirty uh, or they make your children somehow have a disadvantage. And so he says in verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. We'll just stop there. We're not going to get to the children yet. We'll, we'll get there. But what does it mean to be sanctified? Sorry? Set apart. Yeah. yeah. I have a, a standing illustration I use that I'm not going to use today. Uh, and I'm so glad that I'm not using it because whenever I do... Um, some members of my family say, you always use that same illustration. Well, it's a good illustration, but it's usually, I'm not going to use it. I have another illustration that I've come up. I've tried to think of one, but here's, here's an illustration of sanctification. And we're going to spend a long time talking about sanctification this morning uh, because I think it's a, it, very important to understand in this passage. But football, the game of football is a down and dirty, you know, kind of gridiron, real man sport, Right? Uh, I mean, you know, I, I played football in high school, in college. I was a nose tackle. And if you know that, I'm right in the middle. And, and, and there's nothing more that a nose tackle wants to do than to come off the field covered in dirt and mud. All right? Which is, which is like most football players. Most of them are like that, except for one guy. There's one guy on the team who doesn't have a, you know, he doesn't have a big face mask. He's a little bar, you know. And he comes off the field. At the end of the game... He maybe has scored more points than anyone else on the team. But he comes off clean, like downy white or downy soft and tied white, whatever. He's, he's, you're looking at him and you're like, where were you today? We're all, we're all covered in mud. Who is that guy? The kicker. That's right. Yes. Yeah, he's usually you know, an ex-soccer player. He was the soccer player who didn't like to run, so he started to play football <laughs> and... and He's there because he can kick a ball. He's got like this circular kick that comes around. It goes 40, 50 yards and through the uprights. He's the kicker, all right? Now, uh, the coach, let's say the nose tackle goes down. Knee is blown out. And he's looking around for somebody to replace him. And he goes to the kicker. And he says, hey, you, you know, whatever his name is. I don't know, Paul Twist, whatever, whoever it is, right? Um, uh, Hey, get in there, take, take the place of Bidabach there, nose tackle. What's everybody going to say? What is he thinking? That guy is sanctified. He is set apart for a specific purpose. He is utterly, completely different than everybody on the team. And because of that, he's not involved in the filth of the game. 
That's why he looks different. That's what it means to be sanctified, to be set apart. You have a different role, a different responsibility. You don't look like everybody else. Sanctified. The same word, sanctified, the root of it is the same word for holy. Now, when we think of holy, what do you normally think of? God. What other, when you say God is holy, what, we, we sang it earlier. We sang it in a couple of the songs. Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. So when we sing about the holiness of the Lord, what comes to your mind when you are singing, you are holy? What, what are you thinking about? Perfect. Pure. Righteous. But the, uh, the word actually has an idea of utterly unique. It has an association with purity and righteousness. But the word is something other. You are holy, but it is, a, it is set apart. And I want to take some time and go back to the Old Testament to give us some ideas, because there is a paradox with holiness. There is a paradox, and I want to point that out to you because I think that will help us to understand our passage better. So take your Bibles, go back to the second book of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, and turn to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is a familiar passage. This is Moses. This is Moses when he was being called. Moses lived 120 years. The first 40 years of his life, he learned to live like a king in the palace. Then he fled to the desert for the next 40 years of his life. And then he led God's people the last 40 years of his life. This is towards the end of that second 40 years. He's nearly 80 years old. He's out in the desert. He's watching some sheep for his father-in-law. And it says in um, Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire, the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place which you are standing is holy ground. He said to him, he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Why was Moses so afraid to look at God? Because God is holy. He is so other. He is utterly unique. And there is an association with God's holiness that brings death, that brings harm. He was fearful for his life. Let's take another example, another look at at that. Leviticus uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. The next book over, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus chapter 10. The temple had not yet been built, but God, uh, the people, remember, were in captivity and slavery at the end of, after Genesis in Egypt, and so they cried out in Exodus to be delivered. God delivered them in Exodus, and Leviticus, he said, uh, I'm a holy God. You want me to deliver you? That's fine, but I'm holy. You must be holy. This is how I want to be worshipped. He explains that to them and gives them all kinds of rules and build the tabernacle, and this is what sacrifice looks like, and this is how you can contend with me, and I can be your God. But it didn't take long. In chapter 10, we have Aaron's sons who were priests. Chapter 10, uh, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord. We're not sure what that strange fire was. It could have been associated with drunkenness or, you know, it was, it was uh, verse 9, I think, talks about uh, drunkenness in the same chapter. But... Um, 
what we do know is that it was not the way God had deemed to be worshipped, and, and, and that's a good reminder to us. God is specific about how he wants to be worshipped, and the worshippers don't make up the way God should be worshipped. God instructs his worshippers how he wants to be worshipped, and we worship him that way. But Nadab and Abihu were not doing that. They were coming for him in a cavalier way, in a disrespectful way, and... Um, It says, uh, in a way which he had not commanded them, verse 1. And verse 2, and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this this is the father who just lost his two sons. It is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will, I will be treated as holy and Before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. God is completely other. He is utterly distinct. He is utterly unique. And uh, if we think about our solar system and we say the sun, the sun in our solar system is utterly unique. It's, It's completely different from anything else. But not only that, the area around the sun is utterly unique. If you get too close to it, you may be harmed by it. So in a way, you could say the sun is unique, but the area around it is also unique to a lesser degree, but still harmful. What's interesting about holiness is not only God's holiness is is something that you're fearful of because of its threat to your own well-being as a sinner before a holy God, because sinners cannot be in the presence of a holy God. But the paradox of God's holiness is that not only is it life-threatening, but it is life-giving. And if you take a look at Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, it says, um, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And another one called out to the Lord, verse verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So far, very similar, right? The holiness of the Lord is being praised, and sinful man is terrified before it. But something happens here. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. As you're reading this, imagine reading it for the first time, and you're, or being Isaiah, and you're like, oh, oh no, this is not good. I've been burned before, and here is a hot coal from the altar of burning incense of heaven coming towards me, and he's reaching out towards my mouth. This is going to hurt. Verse 7, and he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Probably referring to him being set apart there. Another passage, one more passage, and then we'll come back, I think, maybe two or three or five more passages, but we'll see. Um, And that is Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47, just past Psalms and Proverbs, and you get down there, the prophets, you've got uh, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, you'll find it. Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel has a a vision here. He's looking towards a future time. This time that he's looking forward to is the time actually when the Lord returns and sets his foot on the Mount of Olives. And we know from Zechariah that the Mount of Olives splits in two when the Lord returns. So it's a future time, and Ezekiel's getting a, a vision of this here at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. In Ezekiel 47, it says, 
Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing under the threshold of the house toward the east. This is from the temple, okay? Um, And uh, water was flowing down under from the right side of the house, from the south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gate and by way of the gate that faces east. So if you look at Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you've got the Mediterranean Sea, there's these hills going up to Jerusalem, there's Jerusalem, and then you have more hills, and then you have this big valley, the Jordan Rift Valley, and there's the Dead Sea in there. Well, there's a river flowing out of the temple towards the Dead Sea, which how's it going to make it over the mountains except for the fact that the mountains have been split in two? This river's headed towards the Dead Sea, and behold, water was trickling from the south side when a man went toward the east with a line in his hand and measured a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water, water reaching my an- the ankles. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and the water reaching the loins. Again, he measured a thousand. It was a river that I could not ford. The water had risen enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. He said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now, when I had returned, behold, the bank of the river there, um, on the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, the waters go out toward the eastern region and go down in the Arabah. The Arabah is that desert area around the Dead Sea. Then he, they go toward the sea being made to flow into the sea. And the waters of the sea became what? Fresh. The Dead Sea, which has 10 times the salt content of the ocean. Dead Sea that nothing lives in. Now you have this stream that's coming out of Jerusalem. It's getting deeper and deeper. Normally, tributaries build to a stream, but this one starts out and is shallow, but it's getting deeper and deeper. It just, and the further it goes, the more life it gives. There's lush trees and, and, and vegetation on either side of it, and you get to the Dead Sea, and it says, verse 9, it will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live And there'll be very many fish for these waters go there and others become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it from Engedi to Enaglaim. And there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kind, like the fish of the great sea, very many. But its swamps and marshes will not be fresh. They will be left for salt. By the river on its bank, on one side and the other, will grow all kinds of trees Their leaves will not wither, their fruit will not fail, they will bear every month uh, because the water that flows from the sanctuary, their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So the very very temple, the place where Nadab and Abihu back in the tabernacle where they died because of holiness, now this same place is producing this life that brings the sea to life. And when we get to John chapter 4... Remember the woman at the well in John chapter 4? The woman at the well, Jesus says to her, uh, John chapter 4, verse 14. I'll start in verse 13. Jesus has answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Remember they're talking about, you know, I have water. And she goes, what water do you have? And and Jesus says in verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I have, will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become, be a well of water springing up to eternal life. Um, in Revelation, there's another picture uh, towards the end of Revelation of water in the new kingdom and the new earth that is similar, but we have this picture of the water of life, and it is associated with God, with him being holy, set apart. Um, That's the paradox, is that the closer you get to God, the more dangerous it can be for you. But the closer you get to God, the more like God you can also become. That's related to his holiness. One other um, passage I think we, we have to turn to is Romans 11. Romans 11. 
In Romans 11, uh, beginning in verse 11, we have God is talking about Israel. And he says in verse 11 of Romans 11, I say then, they did not stumble as to fall, did they? May it never be. So he's talking about Israel's failures, and he's saying they didn't do it just to fall. Uh, But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. In other words, part of the purpose that God set apart Israel, and keep in mind, not every Jew was saved when you think of salvation, and yet they were set apart as a nation to be a light to the world. And Gentiles saw that and were jealous of that and became saved. And then he says, um, uh, now verse 12, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch as I am, uh, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move jealously to my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Now he's talking to the Gentiles And he's saying, uh, so Israel was initially God's set-apart people. The Gentiles were made jealous. They came. Now they, the church is God's set-aside people. I'm hoping that the Jews, his own people, will see the church and be jealous of what they have with Christ in a godly way and come to faith and salvation. Um, And verse Uh, 15, for their rejection is the reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance be? But from life to the, uh, but but be but life from the dead, verse sixteen. If the first piece of the dough is holy, this is our word here. If it's set apart, if it's completely other, if it's utterly distinct, utterly unique. If it is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. And he talks about how the church has been grafted in to the tree, and it's a warning. Now he gets to a warning saying if, if he broke off the original branches that were dead, he'll break off any church that is dead as well. Um, so we have this picture of holiness, but again, the picture is of Israel is the tree. And not everyone was saved, but it was a light to the rest of the world. It was a means by which to make Gentiles jealous. Now, Come to our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. Sorry, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her unbelieving husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Here's what's going on, and that is that Uh, this is no way teaching that you can be saved by being married to a Christian. That would be contrary to the rest of Scripture. We know what this doesn't teach, but what does it teach? It teaches that those who are worried about their spouse because they're an unbelieving pagan and the influence, the, the lack of blessing that will be on that home, God is saying that home is set apart because Christ is in that home, is in the life of the believer. And so the marriage is sanctified. The marriage is set apart. The unbeliever is set apart, just as the believer in the sense that When people look at that home, they should still be able to see Christ. Your children are not defiled. They are also holy. They are also set apart because they're growing up in a home, and it's really a special promise to a single-parent home or a parent home where there's not two Christians who are married to one another and they have children because the children still have the opportunity to see Christ. And it's not a deficient home. There's no advantage for you from a spiritual point of view to say, we need to get my kids out of seeing their father um, because those kids, though they see their father who's a pagan, they see Christ in response to that pagan. So therefore, they have the same set-apartness that any Christian home has. And we use terminology like that today. We say, well, I grew up in a Christian home. We don't mean that the house was Christian. What are you saying? I had every benefit of seeing Christ growing up. That's what this verse is about. Just as Israel was set apart, just as God set apart um, certain you know, uh, places and times, like the temple was 
set apart, like his worship was set apart so they can see and have an opportunity for life as though the same opportunity as there were two believers in that home. Verse 15, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. So this is where we're getting at. If you're a believer married to an unbeliever and they don't want to be around, they don't like Christ. They want to, they want to know why you're different. You used to be able to do things they liked doing, the worldly things, and now you don't like doing that. They can't stand being around you because they can't stand Christ and they want to leave. And you're saying, no, I got to hang on to you because I'm your only hope of salvation. And so I will never divorce you. In fact, I'll follow you around. I'll never just chain you down here and we're going to have a happy marriage whether you want it or not. No, you're not under bondage. Let them go. Verse 15, but God has called us to peace. As far as it depends on you, Romans 12, 18, be at peace with all men. Whether you, for how do you know, O wife, whether you're a savior, husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, the way to save them is not to force them into Christianity by forcing them to stay married to you. So the instructions... To the believer married to the unbeliever, if they're willing to stay with you, stay married. Be Christ in that home. That home is set apart. That marriage is set apart in, in, a, in, in a way that is unique. Um, and the children are not missing out on something uh, from a spiritual advantage point of the possibility of coming to faith in Christ because they can see Christ in that home. Any questions? We've got five minutes left. Today, I just I wanted to get through this. I wanted to try to make it as clear as possible. I want to get a, a deeper understanding. This is something that I wanted to know this week as well. I wanted to understand the relationship between whole... Yes? So, so uh, the question is, is abandonment a biblical grounds for Christians to divorce? And the answer to that is no, because it says in verse 8, um, the unmarried, and uh, sorry, verse uh, to 10, to the married I get this instruction not I by the Lord, but the wife should not leave her husband, and the husband should not leave his wife. So that's abandonment. And so what happens, though, in practice, if the church is doing its job and the wife leaves the husband and they're both believers or claim to be believers, the church should discipline the wife for unbiblical grounds of divorce. And if it's carried all the way, she doesn't repent of her sin and she divorces him with no biblical grounds, she is to be treated as an unbeliever. And now that marriage shifts into the second category of marriages where you have a believer married to an unbeliever who is now abandoned. And the sad thing really there is she needs to realize that she needs to repent and turn and come back to Christ. And that's the hope. That's where hope is. Does that answer your question? A couple minutes left. Yes? Could you address the, the believer idea versus confessing believer Sure. Yeah. So the word here actually for believer is the same word we get faith from. It's uh, pistis is the Greek word, and here has an alpha privative on the front, which means it's a pistis, unbeliever. It also sometimes is translated as unfaithful. But the context here seems to be differentiating between those who are believers, genuine believers. We know that there are professing believers, and sometimes you have a professing believer married to a believer, okay? And one of them leaves, let's say the professing believer. This is why the church serves families when they get involved. This is why membership is a benefit for every family, because if it ever gets to the point where you need to be confronted on, the church should get involved and be able to, um, to say, this person says they're a believer, but they are acting as an unbeliever. Whether they're a believer or not, we can't see their heart. But they seem to profess to be a believer, but we're going to treat them as an unbeliever, and that's clear because of their actions. And so when it comes to that, 
um, that person. But if the church never gets involved, it makes the situation much more difficult for those who are now divorced. Um, it, it's really a service to the couple. Yes? Well, so nowadays, it's, it's a, so in America, if you're an unbeliever and you want to divorce a believer, it's hard for that believer to stop you from doing that. In some countries, it's not like that. I, I had a situation I was counseling of a, somebody who was married in Ireland in the Catholic Church, and the church and the state would not give them a divorce for like eight years or something like that. And so, so there are other countries where you just don't, if both, both don't agree to it, there's not a right. But here's the thing. He's saying that uh, you're not doing any blessing on your children to show what a happy marriage looks like when you're forcing somebody to stay with you. So the, the, you're, you're not bound to that. And if they really want to leave you, they must go. Yes? So in the situation in Ireland... So we're, we're going to try and get general here. And let me just say this. I know there are a lot of questions and we're, we're just about... I mean, we're really out of time. But... Uh, John Bates is here. John Delphine would love to talk to you about marriage. He's an elder here at Grace Church. I'm an elder here at Grace Church. Uh, Paul Twist would, would love to talk to you about specific situations. And if uh, and there are others here. We have many people in our counseling ministry, some who are in this study, because the whole church should be equipped to counsel one another. But go ahead and ask your general question, and we'll end on this. Uh, states involvement in marriage. Uh-huh. Yeah. But the state is saying, no, you can't do that. Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, if the state says they're still married, are they still married? Uh, marriage is a lifelong vow that you make before God. And when you make it by the state and the state sanctions it, I've had people that have been married by the state and then can't, got a church wedding because of, uh, they're in a country where you can't do both at the same time. And you know, I've counseled them, hey, if you get married before the state, you're really married. That's not like pre-marriage. That's real marriage. God recognizes it. You you might have two anniversary dates, and you might want to recognize the church wedding, but that's real marriage. And the same thing, I think, is when the state, we submit to the governing authorities. And you're making these commitments, not lightly, and you're making them understanding what the rules of that state are. So, yeah, I think you're you're bound if if the state says you're bound. So, hey, I'm happy to talk to you afterwards. Uh, Let me just quickly close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time together. We do love you. Our hearts go out to these difficult situations, and yet thank you for even the problems that went on in Corinth, which helped bring clarity in our own mind on how to counsel others. We uh, thank you for the privilege of being able to meet together and study your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.